pray a moment. God, we just thank you so much for the courage of Job when he spoke those words so many years ago. Life was really difficult for him. I just thank you for the room and the people here that had the courage to sing those words today. And Lord, that in the middle of our struggling and our suffering, I pray that each one of us would have just a touch from you today, that we would know that we're not alone, that you are here and that there are times that you allow darkness into our lives because there's something more you have for us. Something more you want us to experience of you, to know about you. And God, as hard as it is to embrace those dark times, I pray that you would help us today to learn to trust you, to trust you when things don't go the way we wish they would. Pray now that you'd be our teacher. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. That'd be wonderful. So glad that you're here today. I'm Ron Thompson. I get to be one of the pastors here. And it's just my privilege to welcome you, and especially those of you who are watching online. I know we have a lot of fall break folks out. They're watching online right now, and that they enjoy to do that. But also they have people that will be watching this service at Eschaton. We do church over at Eschaton every week, and we're actually expanding into another bigger room because we've outgrown the room we've been, we're in over there. Isn't that cool? It's really awesome to see that. And then we also have these services in Wayne Brown Jail over at on the Root Center, and so it's just a privilege to be able to take them there as well. So we're in this series on David. So I don't know if you guys have been here. Wasn't last week great as we talked about David and Goliath, and we saw that from a whole new perspective uh, that Kim was able to share with us last week. Now, David, uh, the reason he's so important, I think, is that he takes up more pages of Scripture than any person except Jesus. And so we go to the Scripture, we see that uh, much of it is written about David, by David, and about him as well. And so as we learned a few weeks ago, talking about David, we learned that uh, when it was time that God decided that he would replace King Saul as ruler over his nation, uh, that he had Samuel go uh, to, uh, to the town of Bethlehem and to the home of Jesse, and he had them pick from among his sons, and uh, seven sons, and then at the end of the seventh son, you know, God said, that's still not the one, there has to be another, and so we got the runt, he's out in the field, and you know, he's really too small, he's a musician, why would you want him to be king? You know, that whole thing, and he said, no, bring him in, and then God said, that's the one chosen to be king. And we talked about how we sometimes judge as human beings people by their stature or by their wisdom or their knowledge, but God looks at what is on the inside at the heart, and every one of us, he would say to you today, you're made for more than you think. You made, you're made for more than people have said you were made for. You're made for more, and that's why we have that as the, the subtitle of this series that we're going through. And then last week, we know that we kept, you know, carried through, and Kim talked to us about David and Goliath, and she kind of left it last week with David walking through the camp with Goliath's head, you know, and so he's walking through there, and so everything is looking good for David. Everything is looking good for the people of Israel. Now, you just got to know that no one had told anyone that David had been chosen to, to replace Saul yet. And so Saul doesn't know what's happening and what's going on behind the scenes. And so David has gone back to his you know, trade of shepherding and in all humility he was there. And there was even a moment where Saul, because of the anxiety he was going through and the, 
that he actually had David come and play harp for him to try to ease some of the depression that he had. And so you're just kind of thinking right now that as David's walking through that camp and that he's got the head of Goliath in his hand, nobody expected that to happen, that everything in David's life is going like this. Everything's going like this. It's an upward trajectory. But that is, in fact, not how it goes. <laughs> That's not how it goes. Instead, what God does is allow David to go through this long Scholars say somewhere around seven to nine year period of time. Can you imagine that? Seven to nine year period of time where he lived in what they call the cave times. We're calling them the dark times for our purpose today. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at David and how he survived these dark times to see how you and I can face the dark times that come our way. So if you would go ahead and grab your message notes out that look like this, you can follow along. Most of the verses that we have that we're going to look at today will be on here. We're going to cover several chapters in uh, 1 Samuel, as well as a couple of Psalms today. So there's just a lot we're going to look at today. So you have your Bible. Maybe you want to just open your Bible today to Psalm 142. That'd be a great place to be because we're going to spend a lot of time there as we go through that today. But we're going to kind of go through, I'm going to give you some story. I actually asked you to read last week 18 to 24 of those chapters so you kind of have a heads up. And Kim thanked me for that because it really helped her to stay engaged during the week as we come back to do that. And I'll give you some more verses that we're going to read today. So we're going to land today. So I want to ask a question just to begin because, you know, some of you are going, well, that's real. That's great, Ron. That's, you know, 3,000 years ago. And it was primitive, and sure, it was cave time, sure, it was a dark time, and I'm sure David had it rough, right? But I just want to ask, have you ever felt like you were in a dark cave? Have you ever felt like you were in a dark time, maybe a time of despair, a cave of discouragement, a cave without hope where you feel like that there's no hope at all, a deep cave of grief? I know that some of you are in a, a cave of illness. Maybe there's a cave that you're in and you feel like you're in the cave of the dream that was unfulfilled. And you're feeling that and sensing it. A cave of depression. Yesterday we had a reception for memorial service here and the woman had died of dementia. And so maybe you're in a cave of dementia or Alzheimer's. Maybe it's a cave called cancer. And that seems to be a regular occurrence from people that I know is cancer. Maybe it's a cave of financial instability and you find yourself just struggling to kind of get above the line and be able to make things work. Maybe you're in a family cave. There's some tension or actually some breakdown in your family in some way. Maybe you're in a cave of infertility or miscarriage and those are extremely painful circumstances to be in. Maybe you're in a cave of relational conflict, a cave of financial struggle, a cave of career confusion. Hopefully by now, many of us are being able to realize that caves comes in many shapes and forms and that there's no respecter of persons when it comes time for these dark times. The reality is this, at some point in our lives, we will all spend time in a cave, in a dark time. Some of you may be in a cave right now. So uh, you're feeling the emotion and you're maybe even wanting to run right now because it's so intense. See, the truth is you're either in a cave, coming out of a cave, or about to go into a cave, right? <laughs> That's life. That's the life we get to live. So whether you're in a dark time right now or not, 
I think this message will be very applicable to you at some point in your life, if it's not today. But also, I believe that it will be helpful for you as you talk with someone else who's in one of these times of life that they're facing, and you might be able to bring encouragement. So today we're calling it How to Survive the Dark Times. And we're going to learn from David today, and one of the darkest nights of his soul. He has more that are still going to come in this series, but this is one of the first ones that he goes through, how we can, like David, turn to God when we face these dark times. So as I said last week, Kim did a great job of talking about how we would face our fears and we would walk through those. And so immediately after David had killed Goliath, as I said, his public approval skyrocketed. So let's look at some verses here. Let's just kind of skim through 1 Samuel 18 to get to 22 in just a minute. But it says this in verses 6 through 8. It says, The men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath. The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang... Saul has slain his ten thousand, uh, thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, <laughs> very angry. This refrain displeased him. So it says right there, I was going to ask you the question, and I didn't realize how clearly it said right there. So how do you think Saul, King Saul felt when they were singing this song? You know, I think it made him even more jealous, and it didn't go over very well. Let's go into verses 14 and 15. It's going to get worse for this tension between the two. And everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Not just angry at him, jealous of him, but now he's actually afraid of him. So what has happened is, is that David's star is rising. David's star is going up. His trajectory is going up. He had the admiration of the grown men, and he had the adoration of the young women. He had both. And he was this rising star. Everything that David touched seemed to succeed, and this made Saul insecure and angry. He became increasingly jealous to the point of David to the point where when David would come and play his harp for him, that there were two different times that Saul threw a spear at his head to try to kill him. Two different times. And so let's go on. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michelle, whom Saul gave to David because he killed the giant, loved David, Saul became even more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. So there's just a key phrase there. He, he chose to say, I'm gonna, David's going to be on the outs for the rest of my days. Well, what happened in all this is that the pressure is... is mounting with David, and the pressure was getting strong, and so he kept having to flee and escape from the traps that Saul was laying for him to kill him. And six different times in the next few verses, all the way till we get to 1 Samuel 22, 1, six different times it says David fled and escaped. I put the references there for you. You can just read these, just so we can go through there yourself and see six different times. It says, David fled and escaped. And at the fifth time, finally in a desperate attempt to escape from Saul, David fled and he escaped to a place called Gath. Anyone remember who was from Gath? Anybody? Goliath. Goliath. This is the home of the Philistines. So he's going to go to the home of the Philistines so he can maybe hide out there. He's thinking they won't recognize him. Didn't work. <laughs> uh, they did. And then they wanted to kill him. Now, in order not to be killed, this is where David 
many scholars would say lost his dignity, uh, that he feigned craziness. He pretended to be insane. And so he was, you know, had spit running down his face. Uh, he was babbling in ways that no one could understand him, even self-hurting himself in some ways. And because of this, and they looked at him, and they thought he was insane. you got to know, the Philistines in this day thought insanity was contagious. And contagious. And so they, all they could think of is, we got to get him out of here. we got to kick him out. So they got rid of David, and he was actually able to leave. And that's where we're going to pick up today in 1 Samuel 22, right there. So we're going to pick up right there in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2. It says this, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and fathers heard about it, and brothers and fathers' household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress, underline that please, distress, or in debt, underline that, or discontented, underline that, gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So I just want to show you a picture. This is a picture of the cave that's been designated as the Cave of Adullam. Um, and you can look at that there. It doesn't really show you exactly, but this is about uh, this is about two miles from where the battle had been fought with between the Philistines and the Israelites, where David had killed the giant. So we're talking, it's a pretty small area. Uh, all this is taking place in, but this is a huge cave. It goes down and there's all kinds of pockets and there's openings and there's tunnels and different places that many, many, many people could actually get inside this cave of Adullam. And so David went to this cave and he went there alone. I, I believe he was you know, hiding, so he, he didn't know who he could trust. And he went there alone to get away from all the conflict and to lick his wounds. So that's what he's doing there. Well, soon his family heard about the fact of where David was. So word got around that David, their brother, their son, was in this cave. And so they went to the cave and joined him there. So just think about that. So his whole family shows up where he's in, supposed to be in hiding, and they want to join him in that place. Just think about your family for a minute here. How many of you want your entire family to join you if you were camping in a cave? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, one hand. There we go. <laughs> Would I want my entire family to join me there if that was going to happen? Not to mention, they'd probably never really dealt with the whole thing about, you know, when they had the next king of Israel draft, and they sent David off to the, out to take care of the sheep. They'd never really dealt with this, more than likely, about, oh, why'd we do that, and how awkward that was when we called them in. They probably never had dealt with, you know, families have a hard time dealing with stuff, right? And being honest, they probably had never dealt with... The fact that when David showed up at the camp, when they were, Goliath was taunting the Israelites, that Eliab, his brother, accused him of being conceited and self-serving, and that he should, you know, you're just bringing us to cheese, you know, and so there's really no value in you at all. Probably never dealt with this yet. And all these show up, all the family members show up right there in the cave with them. And then it says that about 400 men joined him as well. I, I can not imagine that there weren't women and children that kind of came along too with that. But at least 400 men joined him in this cave. And I had you underline what it said about him. It said they were distressed. So the reason they were distressed is because Saul, the government, Saul, the government, was demanding so much from them in order to be able to pay for the government programs and the different things that Saul was trying to do. And he was demanding that they serve in the military. And he was a very demanding king. They were also in debt. Because Saul was taxing them unreasonably, 
in order to found his kingdom purposes, fund his kingdom purposes, and it says they were discontented. That means that they had bitterness of soul toward Saul, who represents the government, and they were fed up with the way Saul was running the country. So they were distressed, they were in debt, they were discontented, and they wanted to move to Idaho. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sounds so familiar. <laughs> Sorry about that. But can you imagine the, the physical toll and the mental and emotional toll that this was taking on David? One day he's cruising along, everything's going his way, he's going to be the new king, and, and all of a sudden now he's in a dark place hiding out for his life. So what we're going to do is we're going to dig into David's soul now, and what we're, we're going to pull out two of his journal entries. I sure hope my journal entries aren't published sometime for someone to read. <laughs> But we're going to pull out two of his journal entries. That would be Psalm 142 and Psalm 57. He wrote both of these during the dark time that he was in the cave. And so I'm going to make three observations as we walk through these two psalms. And the first one is this. When I find myself... I'm not, I'm not talking about how to avoid cave times, you guys. I'm talking about when they come, how do we survive them? And the first one is, I need to just tell God how I feel. This is going to be so reminiscent of the Ruth series that we just finished. We talked about Naomi and we talked about the first day that when God seems absent, we gave so much permission to be able to tell God how we feel about how things are going, about how he is allowing things that we don't like into our lives, and, where we, and we wonder where he is, and how Naomi did that with such clarity. Well, David does the same thing, and that's what he does in Psalm 142. But before we go into Psalm 142, I want to read to you what Chuck Swindoll. So I've been recommending several books in the series. This one's by Chuck Swindoll called David. And so you can look at this at the bookstore. It's very, very good in things he writes. Also, there's a couple of books, one by Beth Moore. It's a devotional. She walks through the entire life of David in devotional form. There's several books you can look at. You can learn more about it. But this is what Chuck Sundahl says. This was the lowest moment of David's life to date. And if you want to know how he really felt, just read the song he composed about it, Psalm 142. He had no security, he had no food, he had no one to talk to, he had no promise to cling to, and he had no hope that anything would ever change. He was alone in a dark cave, away from everything and everybody he loved, everybody except God. God is with him. So let's just read what he wrote. Psalm 142, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. It begins with a heading, and so many of the Psalms begin with a heading to kind of tell us what it was about, who wrote it. Uh, the circumstances that were going on. And this says a mascal. So what in the heck is a mascal? Well, it's really scholars have a hard time with the words, some of the words that are in the front of the, some of the Psalms. But mascal can mean, this is what they think it means. It means words of wisdom or enlightenment learned by experience. So that's a mascal. Words of wisdom or enlightenment learned by experience. So it's a mascal of David when he was in the cave at Adullam. It's a prayer. And he says this. He says, I cry out to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. So you might just picture him. His posture is extremely agitated and pained in his soul. And so he's feeling the freedom to do what scholars say would be a lament. 
You know, you read through the Psalms, you're going to find that a big chunk of the Psalms are laments. And laments are, so it's biblical to lament, just so you know. It's vulnerable to lament. It's transparent to lament. And it's healthy to lament. It's healthy to do that. So laments have patterns. And kind of the pattern of a lament would be, first, you cry out to God and tell him how unhappy you are or how difficult this is or how dark this time is for you. You tell him how bad things are. It begins there, and then it transitions to who God is. So it starts, you start, it transitions as into promises or experiences of the past of where God has shown himself to be real and evident. And then it ends with a praise to God in some way. So have you noticed that in the Psalms? Many times the Psalms begin with this lament, this you know, angst of the difficulty of what was going on. And then it, David, the, the writer, will remind himself of the promises of God, the presence of God. And then all of a sudden, it's praising God at the end of the Psalm. And that's why we find them so uplifting to be able to read them and study them ourselves. Here's how Philip Yancey puts it. He says, God has a high threshold of tolerance for what is appropriate to say in a prayer. What is appropriate to say to God? He says God has a high tolerance for what is appropriate to say to him. God can handle my unsuppressed rage. I may well find that my vindictive feelings need God's correction, but the only way I can know that is to get it out. But only by taking those feelings to God will I have the opportunity for correction and healing. In other words, folks, this is, this is so key. You're never going to get where God wants you to go if you're not honest about where you are. You got that? You're never going to get where God wants you to go until you're honest about where you are and talk to him about that and how things are going in your life. And David's showing us that it's okay for us to pour out our souls to God. It's okay to tell God exactly how we feel. He goes on and says this, verses 3 through 7, when my spirit grows faint within me, it is you. So now he's starting to talk about the ways that he's seen God work. So this is the presence of God. So this is kind of the pattern of a lament here. It is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one gets concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord, and I say, you are my refuge. He transitions here. You are my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate in need. He goes on and says, rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name, then the righteous will gather around me because of your goodness to me. I just want to stop at that last phrase. Why? Because of your goodness to me. And that's what God wants to say to you today. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good to you. Even though you can't see it. Even though you question what is going on right now. You have to trust me that I'm God and you're not. And as difficult as that is for you to understand that sometimes I'm not going to tell you the way, why things are working out the way they are, you get to walk with me and you get to trust me. And that's what faith is all about, being able to do that with him. And so David is just reminding himself that God is good and that God was good. Not only God was good, but God is good for him. 
Some of us, we think we're outside of the bounds of where God could be good. He's good, all right, but he can't be good to us. David is reminding us, no, he's good, and he's good for me. And that's what he would want to say to you as well. He's good, and he's good for you. And that brings us to the next part. We're actually walking through this in the form of a lament today. The next part is this. I trust God for who he is. I trust God for who he is. So David spent some time writing in his journal about who God is, and he reminds himself uh, in the dark time of the things that God has promised. Because this is, I don't know about you, but what happens for me when things get dark or get difficult or there's a storm or the waves are you know, crashing is that what happens to me is that I find myself turning my focus to what I can do about the wave or the storm or the circumstances or the darkness and I feel and I know I can't do anything and I panic and I and I get scared and I get anxious and and then I wallow in that anxiousness I kind of sit there and and I need help to to move beyond that this is why it's so good to be in community you guys because it's in community when you Tell someone exactly what I told you just now, that someone in a room will be able to say, and God is with you. Empathetic, not fixing. God is with you. And all of a sudden, oh, you're right. And then it pulls me up out of that. And that's exactly what happens with David here. He goes on in Psalm 57, and he's going to write in Psalm 57 about so Psalm 142, even though they're not in order this way, is written after Psalm, before Psalm 57. And so Psalm 142 is the start of the dark time. Psalm 57 is in the dark time where he's having some perspective. And so he says this. He says, for the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy. What would that tune be, right? <laughs> I wish we knew that tune, but we don't know. We actually don't know what that tune is. It's of David. It's a mictum. Okay, so what is a mictum? Well, the, actually, scholars don't know. They have no idea what the word mictum actually means, except that they've been able to find it in a way that would designate that this song or these words were worthy to be scribed for singing. It's as close as they can come to what this mictum might mean. This is a song that was worthy to be scribed so you can sing. And so he writes that. And he says, when he fled from Saul into the cave. And here's what he wrote. Have mercy on me, my God, as we just sing about. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. Underline that, refuge. I will take refuge, underline that, in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. I cry out to the God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness, Selah. We don't even know what Selah means. But basically, as nearly as we can tell, it means I'm going to take a breath now. I'm going to take a breath. And I'm going to pause. And I'm going to let what came before resonate with you. I'm going to let the words that were worthy to be scribed for singing resonate you in some way. So I had you underline that word refuge. This is one of David's favorite descriptions of God. Over 40 times, David refers to God as his refuge, his refuge 
refuge. And what he wants you to see here when he says he covers you with his wings, that you're under the shadow of his wings, is he wants you to realize that he's your refuge, he protects you, he will be there for you, and you are safe because just as a baby chick is safe underneath a mother's wings, in the shadow of those wings, you are safe under the shadow of God's wings. And so here's what David's saying. He's calling out to God, and he's reminding himself of who God is at this moment. And he says there, you're my refuge. What he's saying there, you are my protection. You are my place of rest. You are my place of restoration. You are my place of renewal. You're the place I run to in order to be refreshed. You are my protection. Let's go on and read what he says. Even when I am in the midst of lions, I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. So be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. Now David's doing here what we get to do in our dark times. As Kim said, shared last week, and I think this is a very poignant moment of her message last week when she shared this, is that we can let the size of our enemies determine the size of our God, or we can let the size of our God determine the size of our enemies. We, can, we, get, we get to make a choice. Our enemies can be bigger than God in our eyes, or we can see God is bigger than our enemies, and then that gives us hope and confidence in him. David did not let the size of his circumstance determine the size of his God. He did not let the badness of his life, the difficulty of his life, determine the goodness of God as he was looking at it. If you guys, are, you guys know Johnny Erickson Tata, everybody, if you know, would you raise your hand? You know, at 17, she went diving in Chesapeake Bay. She kind of misjudged where she was at and was diving, and she dove in head first, and she hit her head and damaged uh, two of her vertebrae, and she became a quadriplegic for life at age 17. She turned 70 this year, turned 70. So she spent from 17 to 70. She's gone through so many journeys with God about the understanding of what happened and why and trusting him. She's, oh, she's poured her heart out as we're talking about. She's rehearsed God's promises so that she can trust him. She spent so much time and that's given her faith. She just recently recovered from her second treatment for cancer and the doctor said it's miraculous that she recovered. So she, at seven, 69, found out she had cancer for the second time and recovered from that. Well, somewhere along the way, she started having not just the experience of being a quadriplegic, which I cannot even imagine what that would be like, but she started having extreme body pain too. Extreme body pain to where she couldn't sleep, she couldn't function. And she was in deep agony. And we're going to watch a little clip now. She delivers a talk to a crowd where she talks about this time and what happened in her soul as she started turning her focus from that pain to God as she was traveling with her husband, Ken. So let's watch this. Just recently, um, one morning on the way to work, um, Ken had me tied down in my wheelchair in the back of the van, and he's driving, and we're looking at each other, talking through the rear view mirror, and, and I am hurting so bad. 
and I can't do this. And I was so tempted to ask Ken to please take the next exit, turn around, let's go home, put me back to bed. I, I can't do this. But I kept thinking of that verse in Jeremiah, chapter 12, verse 15, you know, the one which says, if you don't learn how to compete with men in a foot race, how are you gonna to learn to compete with horses? Well, my quadriplegia had taught me how to compete in a foot race with men. I was in a horse race, and I'm not about to throw in the towel. I have not come this far to throw in the towel spiritually or emotionally. And so I did not ask Ken to turn around. Instead, I said loud enough for him to hear me in the front seat, the Holy Spirit just gave me Psalm 119, verse 50. My comfort in suffering is this. Your promises renew my life. And so God, I am going to recount as many promises I can remember from your word. Because I know that you are good on your word and you will come through on those promises and they will be my comfort and not just my comfort, they will revive and restore my life today. And so, Jesus, I am so grateful that you promise that your faithfulness will never fail me, that you promise you will hide me in the cleft of your rock. You promise that you are my ever-present help in all my troubles. You promise that your grace is more than sufficient. You promise that you will carry to completion that which you've begun in Christ Jesus concerning me. You promise that you will never leave me or forsake me. And I'm going on and on recounting these promises so that Ken can hear them all. And by the time we got off at the exit at the Johnny and Friends headquarters and stopped and the van lift went down, I wheeled out and oh my goodness, my pain had not gone away, but I had courage. And I not only had courage, I had joy. You know, the kind of joy when Jesus said he endured his cross for the joy set before him. I had endured my cross for the joy set before me. And it was the joy of the Lord that was my strength that morning. I had his courage, and not just courage, perseverance, and endurance, and godliness, and self-control. Such good things, all those good things listed so beautifully in 2 Peter. Chapter one, verse six. Hmm. You know, it's really hard to watch that. It's, uh, the whole talk is about 40 minutes and we just watched three minutes of it. And so she recounts a lot of the pain and a lot of the progress of uh, her quadriplegia and then the pain that she was going through in her body and difficulty and you just really see into her soul you see into her heart and so right there she did what david did in the middle of the pain she stopped and she recounted god's promises to her so i just want to kind of walk through psalm 57 here and give you some of the promises that david called out first of all he called out and he says god is good for me god is good for me and then he says, not only is God good for me, God is good to me. He says, God vindicates me. I'm under oppression and I'm being accused of all this and God is the one who vindicates me. He said, God protects me. He's my refuge. He's 
faithful to me, he said. He reminded himself. He saves me from my enemies. He rebukes those who are pursuing me. He's working for me. I can rest and relax in him, my refuge. And he's saying, I trust that that God who is all of that, has been all of that to me, will be all of that to me from this day forward. And that's how we survive the dark times, as we trust God to be who he says he is. And then the last thing is this. In keeping with the process of lament, I survive my dark times as I worship God to awaken my soul, to awaken my hope, to awaken my heart. I worship God to awaken me to him. Now, there are times when we're in Psalm 142, 1 and 2 land, or in that place, where it's impossible to sing, and so I understand that. It's really complicated when we are in those places where we're in the upper stages of lament, and really, uh, singing was not even, uh, in, ha- we're not even having integrity if we sing at that point, because things are so difficult for us. There are times like that, but then there will be times when we, knew, when we move beyond that, We can't stay stuck there at the first two verses of Psalm 142, but we have to work our way through the lament, and we end with this time we worship God for who he is and waken my hope. Now, David wrote, his name is attributed to 73 Psalms, but in the New Testament, two more Psalms are attributed to him. So David wrote 75 of the 150 Psalms we have in the Bible, and he was a man who had learned to use music to awaken his soul to the goodness and the love and the mercy and the provision and the presence of God. And this is what it says in the last verses. My heart, oh God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. Underline this, I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. Underline this, I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. Once again, I will sing underline that, of you among the peoples, for great is your love, reaching the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. And here's what I want to show you. I want to show you what David was doing here. You have the power over your emotions. You're not a victim to your emotions. What David did here is he made a resolve. So he is doing self-leadership here. He's doing self-preaching here. He's talking to himself, and he's saying, I will sing. I will. In the face of this, I will. I resolve. I'm going to sing. I will sing, and I will awaken the dawn because of my singing. I will sing among you and your peoples. And folks, I just say this. Worship requires resolve. It requires resolve. And David is reminding his heart, he's reminding his soul that no matter how difficult things may look, that God is still worthy of his worship. He's remembering with his heart that God is good despite the circumstances that he finds himself in, despite all that he's facing. He realizes that the only way out of this darkness is to focus on the light. The only way out. So in his worship time, he focused on who God was and he sang songs to him. I'll just say it this way. Musical worship awakens your soul to the goodness of God. And it awakens your hope. Musical worship awakens your soul and your hope to the sovereignty of God. 
that God is who he is and that God can do what he says he will do. Musical worship awakens you to hope even in the dark times of life. And that's what we can learn from David. How to bring our laments to God or we pour out our heart to him and know that he can take whatever it is that we want to levy out. And that he then would encourage us to start thinking about the ways that he has come through in the past and the promises that we have. And then he would say, I, you, here's the way out. Resolve to worship me, to bend your knee before me, to sing to me. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and we'll pray together. God, I know that this is not simple and that, um, that I realize that Dave wrote these songs, these, this journal to us to help us to know how he was managing these dark times of his life. And so I pray that each one of us would learn from David how we would do this as well. Here's what I want us to just remember as we, as we just sit here for a moment. I just want us to remember that Jesus went into a cave. Jesus had been murdered. Jesus was put into a cave that was meant to be a tomb that would keep him forever. And that God raised Jesus from the dead. And that when Jesus came out of that tomb, the lesson for us there, the example for us is that there is no cave that can hold us back. No cave that can hold us down. There's no cave that's permanent because there will come a day when every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will come a day when there will be no more tear. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more divorce. There will be no more infertility. There will be no more disease. There will be no more Alzheimer's. There will be no more dementia. There will be no more cancer. There will be love and love only, and we will be with him. That is our hope. That is our hope. And I pray now that as we rest in that truth, that you would give us the courage, God, to face our own dark times with faith and confidence in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.